0: Hi, this is Fabian Nisieta, co-creator of Outrage on
1: Webtoon, the Bourbon Dix novel coming out from Putnam Publishing in 2021, and a character named Deadpool who appears in every Disney Consumer Products Accounting monthly list. You are listening to The Marvelous
2: with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelous. The Marvel Universe Podcast. I'm
0: Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson.
2: And before we get into the usual rigmarole and introducing our very special guest, we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them, our social media.
0: Yes, we do. Go ahead.
2: First up, go on Facebook at facebook.com slash... The Marvelists. Go on Twitter and Instagram at... The Marvelists. You can also find us individually on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Melnick. On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster. And for some God knows what reason, I'm on TikTok. And that's at Peter Melnick, but better.
0: And I'm Eddie Wilson. Oh, wait, I said that.
2: But but speaking of Eddie. Yes. You can find him on Instagram. And that's the only place on the whole wide interweb that you can find that man. And that is at Eddie9193. And on top of all of that, you can also find us on a wide variety of streaming platforms, including TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, Podbean. Uh, what else? We got Spotify. You can also find the show on iTunes, where you can rate, review, subscribe. So, on the other end of the tin can and string, we are joined with a man responsible with a lot of creations in the world of Marvel Comics, in DC Comics. And in just straight-up books and webtoons, ladies and gentlemen, Fabian Niciesa. Hello, boys. How's it going?
0: Good, Fabian. Welcome back. Glad you could join us again. My pleasure. So, we- I'm going
2: to Joe Franklin this right off the bat. So, Fabian, you have a book coming out <laughs> called... Oh, you Suburban weren't even Dicks. born when Joe Franklin was on the air. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean. I saw it
1: like that. I was too young to watch Joe Franklin.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> Suburban Dicks, Fabian, what's it about?
1: Uh, currently it's about 363 pages, which I'm super proud of because I've had to cut this manuscript like crazy for the last eight months. No. Um, Suburban Vicks is my first prose novel uh, that I was fortunate enough to sell uh, to Putnam Publishing uh, in the fall of 2019. It will be published uh, in the spring, roughly, of 2021. Uh, no, no definite month pub date yet. Um, It it is a sarcastic suburban mystery uh, set in uh, the Princeton area, uh, which is basically where I've lived for the last 30 years. Um, And it's an idea that has been percolating uh, with an indescribable fear of completing for about 30 years, quite frankly, almost. (laughs) Um, I originally had the idea in 1993. Uh, ninety four I had the the book title the characters the the beginning the middle the end the hooks everything uh what I didn't have is the confidence in writing prose um, and toward the end of two thousand and seventeen I just decided that uh that i i i had a I, I had to do it I just had to try to do it anyway um and and so I did completely on spec no anticipation of selling it or anything like that um and, and over the course of time, and many people reading it and giving me feedback and advice, and a tremendous amount of rewriting, uh, it got hammered into a form that the agent, an agent, was um, interested in carrying it. So um, the agent, an agent at UTA, a United Talent Agency, the literary agent uh, Albert Lee here in New York, uh, picked it up, and and presented it to several publishers. Uh, I was incredibly surprised and gratified that we had uh, multiple interests. Uh, I was incredibly surprised and gratified that it actually went kind of to an auction with multiple publishers bidding on it. Um, And and we decided to go with Putnam uh, for many reasons, uh, not the least of which is in my heart of hearts. Uh, I like the idea of going back home again because Putnam Berkeley Publishing was my first job out of college before Marvel in 1983 through 1985
0: wow that's That's kind of homecoming yeah full circle kind of
1: yeah i like i like i like the synchronicity of that i thought it was
2: and what is the biggest challenge in regards to writing a book like that
1: um for me it it was not not thinking it sucked quite honestly as simple as that I, i had to constantly Convince myself, or, or find validation from an outside source, to tell me that it didn't suck. Um, e- even to the point where just last week, I just actually put it put the edited manuscript to bed, like on Monday. Um, the, the I got my the editor gave me back the manuscript notes. Uh, you know, it's a page by page, you know, margin notes, and then overall points that that he'd like me to look at. Um, and I did all my tweaks and all my rewrites, and I was incredibly uh happy to see that the, the the editor's notes were not big at all. They weren't major in the least. Um even to that point now. I've already sold this thing. It's actually a two book deal, not a one book deal. That was part of the fun of having it go to auction is the publishers upped their ante by making it two books. <laughs> um so so I have all of this under my belt so I should feel fine about it, right? I should feel cocky about it. I'm still looking at this thing wondering how the hell anybody bought it? Why Will anyone like it? And everybody who's read it has liked it. So I'm sort of like, uh, I think because it's such a new format for me, I've tried prose in the past and never been satisfied with it. Uh, I wrote a Gambit novel for um, a, a licensor of Marvel back in the early aughts that never was finished because the, the deal was canceled by Marvel with the outside publisher. Um, so like 275 pages. Of a pretty big gambit book exists on hard plastic 3M discs. Um, <laughs> wow! And, and, I, and I haven't looked at it in 20 years, and I, I would I would dread to look at it now because I I just don't I just think it's probably awful. Um, every time I tried to write prose, I just I, I just was kind of disgusted with myself to tell you the truth, and and I don't feel that way about it. Almost any of my other writing, I, I've done comic book writing for 30 years. I've done animation script writing. I've done spec script writing for TV or movies. Um, I've done academic and, and, and marketing and branding writing. Uh, I've done, I've done anime rewrites for video game scripts. None of that ever, ever phases me, in the least, to tell you the truth. I, it's sort of like shrug your shoulders. Okay, it's the job. Um, but the book, for one reason or another, always intimidated me, and I never, never thought um, my work was worthy of the format. Um, and and you know who knows maybe it'll be released and everyone will hate it so i'll, I'll be validated by having been proven right um, but, so. but but as it stands right now um, it, there there definitely was a, a measure of gaining confidence as i went along uh, but but still not they're still not quite there yet where i don't think that maybe maybe i'm fooling somebody maybe i'm getting away with something i really still feel that way in my gut
0: well, Fabian, you said that a number of people have read it, and you've gotten good uh, comments, feedback, you've done some rewrites. How many people would you say have, have read it? And
1: uh, uh, Probably the, including the editors or the readers sure. who read it, including the agents, uh, including the TV agents, including TV producers uh, <laughs> who've been discussing this with me. Uh, I'd say probably 25 to 35 people have read it now.
0: That's a good um, start as your core fan base. <laughs>
1: And and, um, and and you know, look, I, I I'm I'm playing I'm playing martyr here because it, I got a two book deal from the publisher. I had five publishers interested in it, all all senior acquisitions editors at all of these big houses. Um, I, I had five television production companies interested in optioning this for television development. We narrowed it down to two. Multiple people at each of the production companies read the manuscript that everyone's saying positive things about it. So my, there's a presumption on to a certain extent that it it, it, it must have a certain level of entertainment value to it because it's getting such response and such interest from people who are actually willing to fork money out for it. You yeah, know? exactly. Um, so I have to, I have to assume to a certain extent that an audience that would buy the book would also be entertained by it. Um, I, I think that, it will really appeal to, to women who read mystery books, um, and I do also think, quite frankly, it will it will appeal to people who have read my comics over the course of time and, and, and who know my writing beyond just early early 90s X-Men stuff, you know? Um, I think anyone who's read my work over a long period of time will, will see a lot of me in the material because... You know, there is a lot of me in the material. Sure. It's just not superheroes, it's suburban escapades.
0: It's something where, you know, I don't know about much about book publishing to begin with, but to, to you, for you to tell us that it's going more than just to be in print, that it's going up to the visual media, and, you know, right out of the shoot as it were, has got to be um, an inspiration, not an inspiration, the word, but uh, an incentive or a positive thing in itself, yeah.
2: Yeah, look, I, as I was
1: writing it, I knew... I I knew that I had characters that translated very, very well into television. Um, I I knew I had a story that translated very, very well into television. I knew that I had a pacing structure to the book that translated very, very well into television. That doesn't mean with everything that gets shown the people out in Hollywood that they have an interest in it. Mm -hmm. Um, but, But I had confidence that if I could get an agent of worth to drop it in the lap of producers, I could somewhere find interest in it, and 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 it's not me writing here at home in New Jersey. It's really the agents who do a lot of the legwork and 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 getting it into the into the hands of the right people who who would be inclined to having an interest in that kind of material. Um, You know, they they didn't give my manuscript to Michael Bay to make a two-hour explosion movie out of because that's not what it is. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So. They actually, and what what I was pretty happiest with is um, I, the the work was accepted, not because I've written comic books or because I'm the co-creator of Deadpool. That that might have had a little bit of an eyebrow raise among some of the people looking at it out of curiosity's sake, but the it was the work itself that that lured them in the subject matter, the themes, the mystery, the story, and especially the characters. Um, so, so I was I was pretty proud of that because it wasn't like I was trying to sell a superhero movie script or something like that, you know, where I wasn't optioning a comic book property I have. Um, they, I, you know, I was selling something completely out of my bailiwick, uh, you know, that, that is not what you would think of when you think of me, but it's funny because it's how I thought of myself my nice. entire career. I just didn't have the, the opportunity or the confidence to try to approach my, my work in, in those other kinds
2: of genres or platforms. Now, in regards to going with this, you know, the novel, were there are there any forms of media you would want to see the book adapted into? The uh, the book is television.
1: no no ifs, ends or buts about it. it. It's not a movie. It's not a movie book. Um, it, it's a book that's pace and tone and setting and characters are completely appropriate for like a streaming platform show it could be a network show but in this particular case we're talking about streaming platforms because those are the people that are that, that express the most interest in it um so so you're really looking at a 10 or 13 episode uh streaming platform show for the first book and if it's successful hopefully they adapt the second book etc cetera, etc cetera.
2: um
1: and and we go from there you know um the the the, the The contract rights are always really weird on books because they're optioning the rights to do one book and the characters contained therein but I'm writing a second book in the same story world, but they don't technically have the option rights for that um. <laughs> so but they have the option rights for the characters, so it becomes this 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 goofy little thing of of ex, of extending your stuff season to season depending on where they're drawing their source material from uh, and the second book will be out in twenty twenty two um, and, and uh, I'm assuming that if the TV show gets made, cause by the, you know, there's a world of difference between an option and a, and a show getting made, you know? So if, 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 a, if the show gets made, I would assume that the earliest it would ever come out would be late 2021 or more likely, you know, early to mid 2022, um, for the show. Uh, and that show would be basically adapting the first book. Um, and it is a series, and and I've always wanted it to be a series. I've had I have five books already mapped out in my head. Um, I know where the characters are going over the long haul. Um, each book is a is an independent mystery, but but the mystery is not the key to the book. the The, the theme of the book is the most important part. Mm. Uh, the the theme of the first book is is white white flight and fear of cultural change in suburbia, um, and the murder wholly and completely revolves around that, those themes. Uh, The themes of the second book are marriage, uh, the things we don't talk about, the things we hide, the things we don't know are happening in our neighbor's houses, uh, that kind of thing. So it's recurring characters, um, and each mystery
2: that needs to be solved is a little bit different. Now, what is the biggest difference compared to writing, you know, compared to all the other Uh, styles you've written like television, movies, comics? Uh, For me, um, no doubt about
1: it without question is the amount of rewriting I had to do.
0: Um,
1: I I come from a world, a career of monthly periodicals of a certain length, of a predetermined length. Um, And your ability to do rewrites are kind of limited by time, by space, um, and quite frankly, by inclination, because, you know, you're not getting paid enough to do rewrites. <laughs> um, <laughs> so so uh, for me, having to rewrite my own work as much as I did to cut as much of my material as I did uh, was, was really part of the learning process. I think I'll do a much better job on the second book of, of, of not overwriting. Um, the first draft of the manuscript that I finished that only one person really saw was like 540 pages. So I just told you that my my, my manuscript returned to my editor was 363. Mm. So you can imagine I cut a lot out. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I got to the point where I was cutting bone. I, I was taking stuff out that I really liked, but ultimately uh, didn't propel the story forward. It was a lot of character-related stuff. Um so I cut that stuff out. That was probably the last, the last forty pages or so that were cut out were were, were bone. Everything else was fat, and fat was from my lack of experience. It was from not knowing how to write more efficiently and more economically. Uh, letting myself get kind of lost in the ability to just wander with words um, I ended up. Becoming repetitive in parts, and that's, again, it's all good craft learning experience, and and it's fun to talk about, not not because I don't want to bore anyone, it's just really from a craft standpoint, it's interesting that this wasn't my primary writing project through the last year and a half, because it wasn't paying me anything at the time, so it was a side project for me, so I wrote it when I could or kind of when I was in the mood, but mm-hmm. it wasn't like Monday through Thursday I was writing the book, and Friday I was writing a comic book. It was almost the opposite, you know? Um, so so I, I I was plucking at the book occasionally, rather than playing a full orchestra all day long. And, um, and as a result, you start to lose track a little bit of what you wrote 40, 50 pages ago, because you may have written that three weeks earlier, you know? Um, So in the rewriting, I realized how many times I was repeating myself, how many times I had characters talking to each other about something that the reader knew about, but one of the characters may not have known about. So I repeated what the reader already knew, and I had to find a way way to get rid of that because I was writing a scene with two characters, and it would be normal that these two characters would be catching up with each other and updating each other on what they know. Okay, that's fine. That makes sense for the characters, but it doesn't make any sense for the reader experience because they, they learn this information 50 pages ago or 30 pages ago. So, so I have to find a way to, to, to kind of get around that, jump skip it. Um, and, again, learning process, learning experience, and, and I think I'll do a much better job with the second book um, of honing it from the beginning so that I don't have to rewrite as much. But, but start to finish, guys, I've probably gone through this thing. um from top to bottom, start to finish, line by line, word by word, uh, probably about 10 times now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and and that's about nine, and a, nine times, nine and a half times more than I usually do with comics.
0: <laughs> Different uh, media world or situation and stuff. And I was under the impression, though, Fabian, that writing, overwriting is probably a good thing because it might be easier than having to come up with more material if you're running short, sort of.
1: Um, maybe, I guess, I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, it's a possibility depending on the kind of book you want to write, but the, the kind of book I was writing and the kind of book that the publishers want, um, they, they want something that's going to come in between 340 and 3, 380 uh, printed, and, and they want short, quick chapters because that's become the reading experience. And, and the vast majority of mystery readers are women, uh, and this book is absolutely going to appeal to women. The lead characters is a 33-year-old pregnant woman uh, who's pregnant with her fifth kid. Um, so, wow. so she, so so, the the chapters have to be brisk. They have they don't have to be one or two page chapters. Nothing crazy like that. But they can't be 15, 20 page chapters um, because that's not how consumers are are enjoying the books they read for the most part. It's not you know. The, the, it, I think the story has a lot to say in it but I'm not going to sit here and pretend that it's high art. You know what I mean? It it is an entertainment, it's an entertaining read, but like with anything I've written, even in comics, I'm trying to entertain you, and I want that message to get through in in a manner that hopefully isn't hitting you over the head, and you're just sort of absorbing it as you go along
2: as a result of being engaged with the story and with the characters. And when it comes to the development of a chapter and the pacing, how do you figure out when a chapter should end? Um, that's a good question. Um,
1: I, I, the first book was roughly outlined, but not outlined to a T. The second book is outlined much more tightly. Um, the, the first book ended when I felt I had a good point that would make the reader want to read the next chapter. <laughs> so, so I guess the the, 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 what I really, what really helped me in writing the book in an odd way it, it, and it'll be a little completely unexpected to you is writing the digital comic uh for webtoon writing outrage really helped me in writing the book uh because outrage are five to six page chapters per 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 cha- you know five to six pages of comic book material per chapter and it's like 20 the first season was 26 chapters the second season is going to be about 30 chapters every five to six pages you have to have some kind of a cliffhanger that doesn't necessarily have to be an overt cliffhanger, but it has to make the reader want to get that next episode a week later, you know? Um, so so with book writing, and I find this as a reader too, it, it's, it's a good chapter if I want to keep reading, right? <laughs> it's not as good a chapter if I go, oh, okay, I can put my bookmark here and put, put it down for the night. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so what I tried to have is is a bit a line a hook a push at the end of every chapter um and and i think i i think i did a better job in the second book of doing that because i was more consciously aware of that in the first book it was kind of me just feeling my way through it as i went along and, and clearly since i told you my first manuscript draft was over 500 pages i did, must not have done too great a job. <laughs> Quite frankly, the, the chapter count didn't change in my rewriting for the book. Just, just the cutting of crap is what changed. Um, so so the, the digital comic outrage really helped me quite a bit in my pacing, um, and it certainly I certainly noticed that when I was outlining the second book. Uh, the second book is all on index cards, like I would normally do with a movie script. Um, and, and the index cards all have like, the, the, the chapter ending that pushes you forward. Um, and, I, and I think I did a much better job of pre-planning that rather than trying to find it um, sometimes after the fact like I did with the first book. No. And I don't know. Look, I haven't even submitted the, main, the uh, outline to the editor yet. I don't have to submit the outline until the summer, but I'm probably going to get it to him by the end of May. I've got a couple uh, research things I've got to do and tweak in the outline before I hand it to him, uh, and he may come back and tell me that the outline sucks and the whole second book sucks. So who knows? I don't know yet. <laughs> we'll see. Um, I'm not supposed to start writing the second book till roughly the summer. Uh, And I'm supposed to deliver it like like six to eight months later or something like that. So that's a whole other exercise for me, too. I I didn't write the first book on a deadline. I just sort of wrote it. Um, This time, I'm going to be on a kind of a
2: contractual deadline. Now, you had mentioned earlier with Webtoon, the outrage series. What is the biggest difference with that versus traditional comics? Um, A a lot. Pacing and structure um, is
1: very different because... When you're writing the five, six pages uh, per chapter, you're, you're telling a very different story uh, in terms of how you're laying it all out. Uh, the format alone, uh, if it were a horizontal scroll, it, its it, its approach would be much closer to traditional comic book format because you're reading left to right, um, and that's how we read here. Um, and, and we also live on a horizontal plane in our existence. <laughs> we walk left to right. <laughs> um, we fly down to up, not not necessarily up to down. Um, but Webtoon is a vertical scroll because uh, it's an Asian publisher. It's a Korean publisher. So uh, because it's a vertical scroll, that really changes your approach to storytelling and pacing. Um, it, 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 because it's a vertical scroll, you need to have – Depth, if you want to have a big panel or you want to sh- have a big reveal, you have to have height and depth. That- that's counterintuitive to how we normally do things here because we're going left to right. If, if- The Flash would really have a hard time working as a vertical scroll comic because <laughs> the Flash, for the most part, runs on a horizontal plane. That's left to right try vertical scrolling that in an in an interesting way and it's it's challenging. Superman would work, you would think naturally in a vertical scroll cuz he flies, except Superman flies from the ground up, right? When you're vertical scrolling, you're not scrolling down to get to the next panel where where, where with which you could simulate the rising of a character. You're scrolling up. <laughs> so <laughs> your panel flow when you're moving your finger to move the panel is very different than what your, what your visual eye would tell you it should be doing. So Riley, who's an, an absolute Riley Brown is the artist co-creator on outreach. He's an absolute master of, of digital comic book storytelling. He was Marvel's go-to guy to do layouts for them for a lot of their original digital comics. Cause he understood the format. So, so well, he was talking to me about digital comics and horizontal scroll format back when we were doing Cable and Deadpool in 2008, okay, um, he still had to relearn a lot of what he knew to make it work. And, and if you look at season one of Outrage, he really doesn't start to feel it right until about the fifth chapter. Um, so what ends up happening on, an, on Webtoon a lot is talking heads work really well. T- uh, dialogue works better in a vertical scroll comic than action does. Um, so what you do is you focus on maximizing fun, flip, character interaction, and you 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 pull back just a little bit on grand four or five page action sequences because it just doesn't necessarily play as well. Um, so so then as a result your supporting cast really becomes important. Your character interaction becomes really important. Having different voices to your characters becomes really important. So it, it's a little bit of a different approach because I gotta I gotta worry a lot more on on what people are saying to move the story forward in a fun and interesting way versus being able to rely on a Brian Hitch double page spread to blow your mind, you know, <laughs> when you when you open when you open it up in a comic book. You know, it um, wouldn't authority wouldn't work that great on a vertical scroll format. Um, so, so, you know, it, it's, a, it's a very different sort of a, of a beast, um, you know, that you got to wrangle. Um, and, and quite frankly, tremendous fun. You know, every I'm 58 years old. I've been doing this crap for 30 years. So writing a comic book to me, it, it, it can still be fun when I'm enjoying the character or I'm enjoying the company or I'm enjoying the editor or I'm enjoying the artist um... writing a comic book can still be fun for for traditional format um, but but from a from a skill standpoint a craft standpoint having to learn something new and trying to do it well is is really fun it's, re- it's, it's really exciting it, it, it pushes your buttons it gets you a little juiced, you know um, so, so in that regard getting to do it has been a lot of fun uh, how long it's taken us to do the second season hasn't been as much fun uh... but um, we're, we're getting very, very close to being able to launch the second season on web two. Um, I, I wish that it had been months ago, but, but we're, we're getting close. I, I just, uh, I just handed Riley the plot for chapters 41 through 46 today, and, and I'm going to be scripting, I think chapter 38 next or 37, 38 next, um, and we start with chapter 27 because they don't they don't renumber the chapters. I didn't know that until we just started doing this uh, second season. They keep the chapter numbers going sequentially. So our first season was 26 chapters. Season two starts with chapter 27. Uh, but Webtoon very smartly wants you to have at least 10 to 14 chapters in the bank before they launch it uh, because the weekly schedule, as we learned really, really catches up to you and, and kills you. Um, and, and it becomes a beast. Uh, it becomes a giant beast. You Guys, the, the 26th chapter of season one, the, the book drops. It's supposed to drop at like uh, 9 p.m. Eastern time on Tuesday. That's when the book was dropping. We finished the final color flat and delivered it to, the, to Webtoon in L.A., 3 o'clock Eastern Time, okay, on Tuesday Hmm. for Chapter 26. And it dropped live at 6 o'clock Eastern Time. (laughs) They wanted to drop it early. Um, So the book we just finished that afternoon, we saw live with, with thousands of views and comments on it, like, hours after we finished it. It was the most surreal experience. We were, we, were getting, we were very adamant about getting our book to drop once a week like we were supposed to because no one else from their North American launches had done it. Everyone else had failed to be able to do that. We were the only, the only original book of the multiple titles they launched in the, in the fall of 2018. We were the only one that all 26 chapters were released on schedule. Um, and we were pretty proud of that because it means we're working our asses off and we're professional. Um, and, and we, that last, every, every, the last three or four chapters, it was getting closer and closer. We're finishing it on Saturday. We're finishing it on Sunday. We're finishing it on Monday. Holy crap. And then the last one we literally finished on Tuesday. And that's when it went live. So we're trying to avoid having to do that for the next season.
2: Now, one of the other things about all of this, you know, you go from writing books, you're doing Webtoon. You also did over at Marvel the Infinite comic of Deadpool and Cable, which they mixed that title up, Split Second. You're going into so many different elements of all these different formats here. You experiment, and it's kind of cool to see how well you adapt in each one of these. And with the Infinite comics, you're going with a completely different direction because, you know, you have this sense of animation to it. What was that like working on?
1: Um, it, you know what, to tell you the truth, it, by the time we did um, a split second, that was like, what, 20, 2015, 2016, I've lost track. Um, the, by the time we did that, Riley and I were both pretty versed in horizontal scrolling. I'd already done um, a, a, a couple digital comics that, that were not for Marvel or, or DC uh, I had done some digital comic work in development for a virtual world startup that I was a part of for several years. Um, we, we'd prepared a bunch of comic material for that platform, and it was and not only was a horizontal scrolling, it also was going to include links that took you to other places so you can go from the comic into the virtual world and back again, things like that we were doing. Um, so, so I had pretty a pretty solid comfort level riley was at the point by then that he was really comfortable in experimenting uh and, and trying to do some stuff uh he, he's the one who wanted to push 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 uh, i'm i'm a little lazier than him at this point in my life <laughs> so i didn't feel like pushing as much as he did but he wanted to do that one chapter where if you read it forward or backwards, it was two different reading experiences because it involved time travel, so Deadpool's moving forward line- linearly in time and the bad guy, I think his name was Loop, he was going backwards in time, so you can read it in two directions and get two different versions of the same story um, uh, one one from Deadpool's point of view and one from Loop's point of view that was all Riley, so he's the one who, who made us suffer through all that <laughs> um, he's, so th- I'm not going to take any kudos for, for being experimental because my inclination would be to be lazy. Um, but, but, but Riley was younger then, and, and I think that might have even been pre-children for him. So he's far, far more beaten down now, so he may be less likely to want to do that kind of crap. Um, it, everything, Peter, is a learning experience for me. Everything's an opportunity to do something interesting or new. I've done a lot of custom comic works for Marvel and DC that you haven't seen And it's always different size formats, different pages, different everything. Uh, A 12-page mini-comic appearing in a cereal box or an 80-page graphic novel uh, that's going to be given out at pharmaceutical conventions, The Marvel thing I did. I did a Lexus Black Panther thing that was written for digital chapters but needed to also be like a 72-page graphic novel. Um, everything's a little bit different, so it's always a different experience. I think that um, uh, it's, not, it's not alien to me because it's, it's part of my DNA. It's how I broke in. I had to do inventory stories, breaking in as a writer for Marvel. I had to uh, master the ability to do short stories for annual backups and for Marvel Comics Presents, which were eight pages in length. Those kinds of different um, the different page counts automatically make you have to um, be able to adapt. You have to. Um, or you fall by the wayside. If you can't tell a good five-page story, they may not want you to tell a, a good eight-page story. And if you can't tell a good eight-page story, they may not ask you to do a good 22-page story. So my ability to do all that was was it was it not new to me because it was part of how I broke in. Um, and I think, quite honestly, one of my strengths back then was showing the editors that I can do something with four pages. It's not gonna win you an Eisner, but it's gonna make you go, huh, oh, oh, that was interesting for a four page, five page story, you know? Um so 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 that kind of thing uh, was always to my benefit. I I was the one trying to do a a a multi issue continued story that would be collected in a trade paperback one day that was being sold as individual inventory stories to different titles and different editors. Uh, the the character that appeared in, in New, New Warriors that, that I'd written before, a character a villain named the Bengal, I had a story that was going to, with this character called the Bengal, it was going to cross over five or six different Marvel titles uh, or Marvel characters. And all of it was going to be done as inventory stories at one time. And I got, like, I got almost all the way through to tell you the truth. I just, I, I just wasn't able to finish, finish the storyline with an Iron Man inventory story that would have finished the storyline. Um, and, and I was doing this without anyone knowing it. And, and, I, and that was just my, my own little fun plan. And, and at one point, a couple of assistant editors noticed it, and a couple of editors noticed it, and I hey, wait a minute. Are you telling, like, a cohesive story in inventory issues? And I'm like, yep. <laughs> so it, it was always part of my game to, to try to figure out something that, that, um, that, that allows you to, to tell a story in a way that, that you, the audience, and or you the editor, because that's really ultimately the goal for me, especially back then, was to impress the editors, um, that, that, that they it makes them go, hmm, and, and you go from there. And, and it, it's, it's worked out in my favor, because at my age, if you ask one of the top comic book writers right now, I need this, this nine-page story for, for this serial, they're going to look at you like they don't have a clue what to do, you know? Uh, They wouldn't. They wouldn't have a clue what to do because they're used to telling 10-part stories of a character, you know, looking out a window or walking down the street. Um, And and as a result, an editor knows that they can ask me to do something that sounds a little ridiculous, but uh, I'll figure out a way to sculpt something out of it, you know? It it may not be the tastiest meal you've ever eaten, but it's going to get you through the night, and tomorrow maybe you'll get a better meal.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's <laughs> a good analogy. Uh, Fabian, with the writing process, with, with this Suburban Dicks coming out, um, was there ever a time where you thought, you know, I'm thinking kind of like along the lines of writer's block, but where you just needed to know where can I go from here? What literary or writing tools do I need, whether it's in my head or how you're expressing? Did you ever think to, or it didn't occur to you to seek out other, like, established more so in this vein, authors... I mean, I'm going to Stephen King when my brain hits that, when I heard you say something right away, um, just to say, hey, can you give me a little direction? Or you said, you know what, I can't. I, this is all me, i got to do this. Or it didn't occur no, to
1: you. i got I to be honest with you. I, I've, um, I've either been blessed with good luck or cursed with incredible arrogance and conceit. Uh, I've never had writer's block in my entire life. And it could happen tomorrow, but I've never had it in my entire life. And I know people who have had it. I've watched them endure it. I've watched artists who go through artists block. It's something very similar. Um, uh, it's never been an issue for me. I, I've, I, I, I seek advice from other people when it comes to um, when it comes to how something I've done is. What do you think of this? but it's already something that's in readable form. Um, I, I seek advice from people who have done it already. If it's something I'm doing that I haven't done before, like in this instance for the book, uh, one of the people I was, who was a really important sounding board for me um, was Alex Segura, who's the, the president of Archie Comics and has written five Pete Fernandez mystery novels. Um, and, and I was really impressed and very respectful of, of Alex's ability to accomplish that while he was president of a comic book company, while he was having his first two kids, to, to, to write a five book, um, you know, hard boiled mystery series, that he, detective series that he was doing. Um, so I, I, I sought advice from him because I thought that here's someone who's done this, a very different genre, a very different, uh, you know, platform, um, and, and, and maybe that he'll help me. Find an outlet for my work um, because if he if he's interested, he might speak well of it to to Paulus Books, his publisher, et cetera, et cetera. You know, um, so that was at the very very beginning. And Alex is one of the people who read the first two chapters and said, "Yeah, keep going, keep going. This is worth it. Keep going."
2: Right. That good. was
1: a mm-hmm. huge solace for me because if he had told me it's not good or it's not there, then it may have derailed me. Um, it may not have, but it may it may have. Um, but, but I never, I've never gone to someone saying, I can't figure this out or I can't, I can't, um, I can't fix this, this story conflict or anything like that or this character conflict. I've never done that. Um, and, and I've not co-written that often. I've only co-written a few times. And I, 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 you'd have to ask my co-writers whether I was any good at co-writing with them or not. I, I don't know whether I was or not. Because it's always been a very kind of um, insular thing for me, um, and and part part of my what I describe as my excellence in mediocrity is that I never have had the opportunity or the blessings to worry too much about it. Um, I, I broke in uh, uh, pretty hard and fast at Marvel with a full time job and an escalating freelance title count, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, when you're writing six books a month for Marvel and you have a full-time editorial job doing licensed books and you're commuting three hours a day from New York to New Jersey, um, you, you, you don't have a lot of time to wallow in it. You, you, so I, I I became a, a sausage grinder. I, I, I was grinding out sausages every month and some tasted better than others, but the sausages were getting made. So I never... I never became fay about my own work or coy about it. Uh, I just ground it out, and, and I, that never left me. Even when I had more time to do something, the, the, the concept of grinding it out never left me. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I might have three months to write a certain, certain parts of a book versus three minutes to write a, a comic book plot, um, but I'm still going to grind it out. I'm still going to figure my way through it. Um, the, the beauty of the book, though, is quite frankly – you get so many eyes on it before it even goes to press. You have lots of opportunities because it's such a lead time for publishing. You have a lot of opportunities to fix stuff. You have a lot of opportunities to tweak things. Um, you know, I just added. I just added about. I had actually gotten the book down to 360 pages. I was so proud of myself, and my editor said, "We need this and this." And I said, "You know, that's going to get us up to, up to two or three more pages." And he goes, "I know, I know. Just do it." Um, so, so I, um, I had to add a scene or two to the book because he felt that we were missing a touch here and there. Um, and, and he was right, and, and I, so, I, so I added a scene or two. Um, that, that's the luxury in books that you have the time to fix it, and you have eyes on it after your initial manuscript is finished. Um, in comics, you don't generally tend to have that luxury. Uh-huh. No. Eddie?
0: I asked the last question. What are you talking about?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so of course we so do. have got no questions in. left. You're so bored to listen to me talk. No, know. I do.
0: There's, there's one we got in here. Um, Peter put up a post, and it was from Rob Casey. You want to ask about this Suburban Dicks. Again, the, uh, if you didn't touch on it already, um, your inspiration behind it, and uh, what about it that appeals to you the most?
1: Okay uh, My inspiration behind is a great story that I'll try to tell shortly, which I never do a good job of doing on these podcasts. Okay. Um, the inspiration behind it is that uh, I had a gun club on the other side of a pond in my house between 1993 and 2001. and we tried to get the gun club to stop their outdoor shooting, uh, through the town council and all that stuff, and we, uh, we failed. Our neighborhood failed to do that uh, because we got voted down by one vote. So they were able to continue to sh- outdoor shoot and indoor shoot. Occasionally bullets would come our way. Um, so, so my house got hit. Uh, pistol slugs were found on, on both my property, my neighbor's property, um, and it became really infuriating. And, and the, 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 the gun club was populated by about 50 members, of which 38 of them, I think, weren't even township, didn't even live in the town I live in, um, and uh, and of course every single one of them were old white townies. Um, so I said to myself, wouldn't it be great if I could get revenge on these bastards? And and then I thought, wait, what if I could get revenge on these bastards in a fictional setting? <laughs> so so the premise of the book. Started with my desire to get revenge on on those bastards and it, it, what it was I said is what if a murder today begins to uncover a secret that they're hiding from yesterday so that was the genesis of the book idea um, and, and the, the basic premise is a gas station attendant gets killed And it's the first murder in town in 30, 40 years. And the police say it was robbery. And two people question whether it was or not. Um, One of them is a 33-year-old pregnant woman who accidentally stumbled onto the crime scene the morning of the murder and saw a whole bunch of stuff that no one else but her would get. Because this young woman should have been an FBI profiler. But she got pregnant when she was a senior in college and didn't go to Quantico. And she also happened to have solved the serial killer case while she was in college in New York City. And now here we are 10 years later where she's a mother of four, and she's not who she should have been. But she becomes interested in this crime, and she hooks up with a a reporter who won a Pulitzer Prize when he was right out of college. He's the youngest journalist ever won a Pulitzer Prize. He wrote a story while in college that took down the governor of New Jersey. And now, nine years later, he's working for a weekly suburban newspaper because he failed miserably in his 20s uh, and, and cheated the system and got caught. So his name is Mud. And and the two of them used to know each other when they were younger. She's four years older than him, but, but she dated his older brother. So the two of them have known each other since they were kids. And they hook up and they work together to try to solve this murder. And all of it is about the themes of who we should have been, who we could have been, who we want to be, combined with the the idea that a town has cultural changes, um, its demographics change, and the old-town whiteys get very scared of that change. Uh, so it's all about underlying suburban bigotry that exists between old-townies and newcomers, Um my town has gone through a, a, a pretty major cultural uh, evolution over the last 30 years. Now, take into account I had this story idea back in 93, now we're, you know, we're almost 30 years later, so the, the changes that were just starting to happen much more forcefully back then are completely rooted now. I live in an area that's like 70% Asian, um, and and the stuff, all the housing developments that went up in the 80s, 90s, and early aughts have all recycled. Now, through 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 ownership, aging out to the point where every time a white family sells their home, uh, an Asian family moves in. And that just changes the cultural dynamic of the town. And, and I've always looked at it with a very bemused aspect because I'm fortunate enough to be an immigrant, so I see things a little differently. Um, and and I've always been very curious about that. So those are all underlying themes of the book as well. Um, and, and, and themes that are being played out in suburbia all over the place. Um, so that was the gestation of the book from way back
2: then. I told you I couldn't do it short. <laughs> That's <laughs> now, what fine. What about inspirations for, you know, authors and other creators for this? Uh,
1: nobody. I've got to be honest with you, nobody. I, I don't read that many mysteries. When I started writing the book, I purposefully didn't read any. Um, uh, I uh, I was reading mostly historical nonfiction when I was reading books. Um, I don't I don't I don't ever I've never I've never looked for other writers. My biggest mistake when trying prose in the past has been trying trying to use someone else's voice, and it happened to be whoever I thought was cool at the time. Um, the, the last time I distinctly remember trying was in the early authors. And I was really into James Elroy at that point. And my writing, I think, whenever I tried was awful because I'm not James Elroy. So it, it, it took me age and time, uh, a combination of confidence and not giving a shit, to get to the point where it was just going to be the voice I wanted it to be, period. Um, and it is my voice. I'm telling Peter, Peter, when you read it, you know me, when you read this, you're going you're gonna to go, yeah, that, that's Fabian's voice in this book, you know? Um, yeah. Anyone who has read it who knows me sees it. Anyone who doesn't know me just gets this kind of sarcastic edge from the narrative voice to the things that are going on. Um, but but I, I, I wanted it to be me, because if I was going to do it, I, I didn't want it to be somebody else, because then if it failed or if it succeeded, you know, I, I, I'd be disappointed, you know if it failed i'd be disappointed that it, that i I failed as someone else and you know and if it succeeded i'd be disappointed that I succeeded as somebody else i'd rather I'd rather it, it have been me um so for better or worse, it is me um, and i and I'm, I'm I'm still not like I talked to you at the very beginning of the show I'm still not a hundred percent happy with this, but <laughs> I'm getting a little closer at this point um You know, so so we'll see. It's great. It's great. You gotta have writer's dread. You really do. And I'm an incredibly cocky, confident guy, but I still have writer writer dread and writer insecurity. I don't usually manifest that externally. I don't. You don't know it nine times out of ten, but I feel it. Um, And I'm already feeling it because I got to start the second book. And what if I'm a one trick pony, guys? What if the second book sucks? What if I lose my voice? All of these things, like (laughs) so. Um, You know, I'm at the age and at the point in my life where where I'd rather succeed or
2: fail um, than just being me for better or worse. Now, one of the things that's going on in the world is due to the coronavirus, COVID-19, a lot of us are not able to go to do things that we normally love to do. And one of those is the convention scene. And you are a major staple of especially the tri-state convention scene. And you make that level of personability, if that's the right word, I think, maybe, hopefully, but you make the person meeting you on the line, enjoy themselves and just have a great time. And where did you end up getting that ability to make people enjoy being able to meet you in that opportunity and make it a memorable one? Well, oh,
1: I appreciate you say that, uh, because I've got to be honest with you, I work really, really hard to try to do that. Um, <laughs> it doesn't work for every single person that comes to see me, but, but I think that the, the majority come away happy uh, with the interchange. Um, um, I, it started for me because I was working promotion for Marvel Comics. I, I was the advertising manager, and my job was to go to conventions and sell the company and sell the product and sell the creators, um, and, and I wasn't necessarily selling me. I was selling a feeling. I was selling an emotion. I was selling, uh, you know, someone else's work. Um, and, and I, w- uh, Steve Saffle, was the promotions manager, so he was the major uh, convention liaison. He was responsible for everything that happened at the conventions, but he couldn't handle the full load by himself, so I would go help him at some shows or I would have some shows on my own that I did. Um, so, so the first few years of my convention experience really was um, – as being the promotional support mechanism for the company and for whatever creator was sitting at the booth, at the Marvel booth at that moment. So if John Ramita Sr. is there, I'm helping him out, you know, Chris Claremont, whoever, you know. Um, and and I, I think it was a combination of my natural uh, hucksterism, uh, my natural confidence in talking to people. I'm not a very shy guy. Um And at least externally, I don't manifest myself that way. Um, And also, seeing people who did it wrong and seeing people who did it right. And I got to see that from behind the table, not in front of the table. So that made it very interesting, because I could see a creator handle one fan really, really well, and then handle the next fan really badly. And then the next fan, he did okay. And then the next one, he did great. And then the next one, oh, crap, he did really badly. And it was interesting to me to see that kind of um, ebb and flow to the interactions uh, I also realized how indescribably socially awkward both the readers and the professional creators are um, we are an industry of relentless social awkwardness <laughs> uh, oh God yes and, and I, I've known that from the very very beginning and I saw that from the very very beginning and and, and I, I said Let, let's Let's take the social awkwardness out of the equation by making it an automatic part of the equation. Let's be forcefully socially awkward at times. And this was pre-Deadpool, mind you, okay? (laughs) Having Deadpool in my back pocket as part of my exchange with you, the audience, gives all of us carte blanche to be as stupid, as rude, as incorrect (laughs) As, as robust as raucous as we want to be, because it, it allows everyone to kind of relax that veneer of of civility or that that um, that sensitivity to the exchange, that awkwardness to the exchange. Uh, the the Deadpool part of that helps helps reduce those barriers, um, and, and as a result, I think that that helps the interchange. It, it helps. It helps my ability to reach you, and it helps your ability to be reached, you know? Um, so, so it all ends up working out nine times out of ten. It, works up, it ends up working out okay. You, you guys have seen the lines I've had at conventions and stuff like that. For the most part, most people walk away pretty satisfied if they had to wait an hour or two at New York Comic Con to see me. Um, most people feel good about having <laughs> paid me ten bucks. Ten bucks to find something. They don't feel bad about having given me that money, which is crazy to me because I feel bad taking it. Um, but I'm going to take it anyway, mind, mind you. Okay. Um, so, so that that always helps. I, I think if I didn't have Deadpool, I'd only have half of that equation. Having Deadpool makes a huge difference. Um, and actually, I'm finding out having outrage helps because more and more younger people who come up to see me at a show um, are are familiar with webtoon and familiar with outrage on webtoon. Uh, If you're under 30, I'm seeing a lot more people uh, disseminating their comics through that platform. Um, And I've noticed that uptick trend in the last, like, eight months or so of attending shows. Um, Ironically enough, coronavirus time, I had no shows scheduled for almost two months. Uh, It was just a a, a core. I was was reducing the amount of shows I was going to do this year anyway. I was only going to do about eight this year. Um, but I, I, I had nothing scheduled for April through most of May anyway. Um, so it, it's an ironic twist that I'm not missing out on any shows. Um, I have no idea what's going to happen with the shows coming up, but I'm hoping that we can have New York Comic Con. I just don't know. I don't know where
2: we're going to be. I really don't. Yeah. And one of, one of the things, you know, you mentioned about that ability to meet you at the shows. You're so personable and you end up like, the line is long because you end up spending time with each fan. Like I, I met you uh, I think the first time, and I was socially beyond socially awkward, and we had a 10 minute conversation, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, he really cares about each experience with the fans, and it kind of reminds me of uh, Jim Stenko when you meet him as well because he will tell you a story, he'll regale you, and it's like. I've gotten, like, I think two or three stories from Jim, for example, at a convention, and it's it's one of those things that makes it a memorable experience, and it makes the fan come back again and again and again.
1: And I appreciate that, Pete. And part of it, look, it's it's not me being some magnificent person either. I mean, look, the honest truth is that I spent the early 90s with my head down signing comics and, and you know, a two-hour line at San Diego Comic-Con during the X-Men heyday, and I, I barely got any real interaction with people. And that wasn't fun. Um, that, that was an assembly line. And I, I don't see how that was rewarding for them. Um, and, and then when I went, I started going back on the convention circuit, which I think was 2015 is when I started again, after not having done it for almost 10, 15 years. Um, uh, I didn't do a show for like almost 10 years at one point when I started going back again. Um, the, 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 it was a combination of two things. Um, the the, the, the rise in popularity of Deadpool brought new fans out. The, my return to the circuit brought old fans out, I felt all of them deserved an opportunity to have an interaction with me that I wasn't able to give the older ones way back when. Um, And then you combine it with the fact that if I breeze through my line in in half an hour or one hour, then I'm sitting there at the table twiddling my thumbs talking to people one at a time uh, as they wander by. And that's not a rewarding convention experience for me Um, because then I get bored and I get frustrated and I wonder if people hate me and no one wants to see me and everything we've always thought of when we're on the other side of the table, right? Um, So if I'm taking 10 minutes with you, Peter, it's rewarding for me. I hope it's rewarding for you, and it keeps the line from ending. And if the line doesn't end, that means I get to do it all day long and everyone else says, holy crap, who's that line for? Oh, it's for Fabian? People still like him, or who's he? And and that works to my advantage too. So, you know, going slow on the line is also a, a promotional business move on my part because it, it keeps it keeps people cemented to my booth, and it keeps them interested. Um, and, and it keeps other creators and other professionals curious as to who's that for, who's that line for. We always ask, who's that line for? Who's that line for? Whenever we see big lines, right? Um, so, so there's an ego aspect to it, and, and I'm not going to deny that, um, but, but ultimately the most important part of it is what you, what you mentioned. Are you walking away feeling that it was worth your time? And if the answer is yes, then then all of it, none of, none of it matters and all of it matters. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. and, and if the answer is no, then, then, <laughs> then I failed somewhere along that. That exchange, or maybe you felt somewhere along that exchange, but chances are pretty good it was me. Um, So, so you know, the 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 ten minutes is is because I want you to be waiting in line for an hour, and I want you to feel it was worth waiting in line. You know, the waiting in line for an hour. So, uh, I I think when I do the shows, and I'm going to be doing less in the future, um, but when I when I do the shows, I I I think that i been pretty successful at, at. keeping that going. And it's been a few years running now. Um, um, but the nature of the shows I'm going to be doing in the future may change because of, of if I'm, I don't know if I'm doing book shows or book related shows, I can't imagine they're anywhere near as much fun as comic book shows are. Um, and, and I can't imagine that someone's going to wait in line two hours or an hour at New York Comic Con to get my book signed. Cause you know, my not a novel sign because you know the 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 nature of the personality types who read books are different than the people who read comics. Um, so we'll see, we'll see. I don't know. It'll be it'll be, interesting to see what
0: it'll be a new adventure there. I got to say, Fabian, for my meeting you experience, I came along first time with whatever show it was with Peter. So I had an in in a sense that way, <laughs> two two autographs and not much of a way later was great. And the other time I remember being, it could have been at Eternal Con, and and being told. That is gotta be absolutely the worst looking Punisher cosplay I've seen yep. anybody wearing.
2: Is that <laughs> mean
1: me telling you
2: that?
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's, it was,
0: was funny. Yeah.
1: Yeah, because even and, if you came away mad, I was pretty happy with that. Experience. No, I had I
0: did not you know, I mean I remember i remember it as a memorable moment, not like, oh it's a chip on my shoulder. We're gonna talk to Fabian now and this jeez. No. It was fun.
1: I got I I still I still always have to learn to be careful with cosplay, because sometimes it's like people are putting so much work into it, and if it doesn't come out right and you make fun of it, you're really crushing them. And I I think I know, I didn't know, I don't know if I did that to you, and if I did, I apologize.
0: Oh, no, it was not, you know, a whole lot of it was a store-bought kind of thing, and it was just like, okay, this works for me. I've seen different levels of it, so, yeah.
1: I I think I remember now that occasionally. I, I know that I said that to this woman who was doing a Domino cosplay at a, at a convention, and it, it just—it it, it wasn't a great job. She oh. it, it didn't look great, and, and I said—I <laughs> said something that I like just—just just something that was just enough over the line of, of, of <laughs> not being the smart thing to say. Like <laughs> uh, I think she was using like cardboard cutout. It was—it was, it was the, like the, the early '90s X-Force Domino too. So that's <laughs> a bad head head headdress dress and, and all that other crap. It just didn't look didn't look good. <laughs> it was like it was like cardboard. It was like cardboard and a uh, construction paper cutout
2: mm-hmm. out costume parts. And
1: I shouldn't have said nothing. I got to learn my lesson. See, that's the the lesson at convention should be just shut your mouth, you idiot. But then there's no fun in it, right? So uh, I think part of the fun is me taking the risk of saying something really dumb and inappropriate.
2: <laughs> <laughs> now, over the years, one of uh, the comic creators, Todd McFarlane, has gone on that there's more signed copies of Spawn Number 1 than there are unsigned copies of Spawn Number 1. And for yourself over the years, are we at the point now where there are more signed copies of New Mutants 98 than there are unsigned? You know, that's numbers? a good question. We always joke about it because nobody keeps count, of course,
1: but... I, I've, I've done that as a joke. I did that as a joke back in the early '90s when X Force number one came out. I would say, uh, I would say, uh, you know, one hundred forty-seven thousand three hundred twenty-eight. Like I'm pretending I'm keeping count of how many there are. Um, and the running joke was always, at what point have you signed more than than half the print run? And and in which case, which is worth more, unsigned or signed? Because <laughs> it'll be scarce if they're unsigned. Um, New Mutants 98 had like a 660,000 copy print run, I think. So I don't think I'm in danger of getting to the halfway point yet, um, although maybe getting close. I don't, I, how do you even guesstimate that? How do you, I know I've signed thousands and thousands, but I don't know if I've signed 100,000, you know what I mean? I don't know if I've signed 200,000. It's an impossible number to figure out. Um, it would be a fun social media experiment, though, to, to ask everybody on social media to, to, to raise their hands if they have a signed copy of, of New Mutants 98 by, by Rob or by me and then see what happens. Um, but, but I don't think we're at the halfway point yet.
0: Lots of luck to you, Fabian, with what's coming down the line. And, and thanks for, for all that you've given us in this episode. that has been really great. The most I, I think we've gotten it, to guys, talk was to you. It a
1: lot of fun, and I really appreciated getting to talk about different things.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff there, and, you know, we learned, I think, uh, more so myself, more about you than just being at a show or any any brief encounter, so I mean that in all in positive terms.
1: And you found out what kind of a tree I would be if I could be a tree. <laughs> <laughs> you, got, you got me to cry like Barbara Walters would want you to do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate it a lot,
2: guys. It, it, it was great to be able to talk to you. Anytime, anywhere, okay? I do have to ask one final question, because of course it's Nate. Nice, but with uh, the character Deadpool going around now, a lot of people are speculating what's going to happen with him, you know, cinematically. And I'm curious, your opinion, how would you introduce Deadpool into the Marvel Cinematic Universe?
1: Uh, my opinion is one that most people don't like, because when I say it, they don't agree with it. Um, I wouldn't. Uh, I think Deadpool works best when he's in his own little world, preferably his own little corner. Um, I think that the problem with Deadpool, which I found when I was writing the comic, and I think everybody finds when they're writing the comic, is that he is overwhelming. And as a result, anybody else who's in a Deadpool comic uh, becomes secondary in nature to, to Deadpool. And I, as a viewer... Uh, I would not want to see the Marvel characters uh, uh, become second fiddle players to Deadpool's antics. It's like anybody appearing in a Bugs Bunny cartoon is a supporting character to Bugs Bunny, and, and I don't want to see Spider-Man as a supporting character to Deadpool. I don't, I don't want to see Captain America you know, made fun of by Deadpool. That doesn't work for me, uh, but it's okay if Deadpool's making fun of whatever character's are allowed to exist in his own little pocket universe, Colossus or, you know, Juggernaut, whatever. Um, that, that, that's okay for me. Um, I don't know that it would work anywhere near as well if it were it, embedded into the mainstream Marvel universe, um, uh, the Marvel Studios movies. That being said, the talent level involved in making these movies and in, in producing these movies out of Marvel Studios is so high that I'm confident they would do it well if they chose to do it. Um, so it, I, I don't have a horse in the race. I, I get a check whether, whether the movie good or not. The movie just has to come out, and I get the check. And that's really ultimately what I care most about, not whether Deadpool works in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but whether a Deadpool movie is coming out, period. It could be a Hallmark movie with Deadpool, and I'll get the check. So that's what I, I care about, okay? My biggest problem with all of this movie crap is not how to make it work, it's that they're not making enough of them. I would like a Deadpool movie a week. That's what I would like.
0: Adventures would of, that.
1: yeah. I think that's a really, <laughs> really great I, great point I have to make, no though. no control over whether they're good or not, therefore
2: I don't care. All I know is if there's a Deadpool movie a week, I would get a check a week. That's what I care about. <laughs> I'm still disappointed that the, uh, they were supposed to make an FXX series by Donald Glover, Childish Gambino, and it never got to happen. They ended up canceling it, and that would have been cool to see, just a weekly Deadpool fix.
1: Yeah, I think it would have been interesting. I, 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 I heard only what I guess anyone else heard is that they, they just couldn't get it to work between all of them. Uh, I I, I respect Donald Glover Glover tremendously creatively. I I do. I think Atlanta is brilliant. Uh, I think he's really good. Um, That being said, that doesn't mean that he handed something in that Marvel would say, yes, we like this. Let's do it. He could very easily have handed something in that was not what Marvel Studios or even FX at that time was interested in seeing. Uh, Because creative people can go their own way sometimes. Um, so so maybe deciding not to do it is the smartest move on the part of all parties concerned rather than
0: doing something that doesn't work.
2: All right, so before we wrap this episode up, we want to say, Eddie, you'll say it again. Thank you very much.
0: Appreciate it again. Fabian, you are looking forward to Suburban Dicks coming out in 2021.
2: Thanks a lot, guys. Talk to you soon. Oh, before we go, how can people get a hold of you on social media? Um, Twitter, it's at Fabian
1: Niciesa, and on Facebook, it's Fabian Niciesa. Be, feel free to join the 1,000-person waiting list. Sorry for anyone who's on that list. Uh, Twitter, though, come on by. Occasionally, I might even not tweet about politics.
2: <laughs> <laughs> for The Marvelous, I'm Peter Melnick.
1: I'm Fabian Niciesa.
0: And I'm Eddie Wilson, Excelsior. Obsessed with Marvel with Fabian Nicieza. Thanks for sticking around. You got it. Trivia is fun. Multiple choice, one of four possibilities. We hope. Question number one three seven eight says, "Who was not a member of the Extreme X Men?" The choices are Storm, Phoenix, the Beast, or Thunderbird three. Who was not a member of the Extreme X Men? Storm.
1: Oh, that's a tough one because I never read that one.
0: Yeah, me too. Um, Storm, Phoenix, the Beast, or Thunderbird Three?
1: I think it's either the Beast or Thunderbird Three, but I'm not sure who Thunderbird Three is.
0: I yeah. Um.
1: I I don't know who Thunderbird Three is, so I'm gonna have to just go with Thunderbird Three.
2: Uh-huh. Well, I mean, he's the third Thunderbird. <laughs> no. Yeah, but I don't know who it is. <laughs> uh. I'm going to go with
0: Thunderbird 3 as well. Follow the leader. Here we go. Letter D, and it is? No, it's not correct. The answer is Phoenix.
1: Wait, Rachel Summers wasn't a part of that team?
0: I guess not.
1: I can't imagine Claremont writing a book without her. Wow. Okay.
0: (laughs) Well, there we go. All right, let's head down the line here to 797.
1: I feel good about this one, Peter.
0: Mm. it's just a number all right whose identity did madam hydra usurp in captain america number 180 and they're saying it's back to 1974 viper that was letter b uh the cobra (laughs) the viper the asp or black mamba viper okay with all certainty i guess we just have to go with letter b and go with me because i had no such idea uh, that a bee. is correct uh B yeah no it's not a bee, it's not an asp it's the viper okay
1: black Mamba asp, uh, uh, and cobra were all part of the serpent society but but Viper was a villain that preceded the serpent society uh-huh not the issues I fought the issues when they came out <laughs> you handle heart and salve family on Captain America
0: okay we're at almost at the end of the book now with this question and without going over 2400. And three. Okay. Whom did Captain Simon Savage encounter in issues two through four in 1968 of Captain Savage and his Leatherneck Raiders?
1: Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos. Uh,
0: Not a choice here. Okay. The Hand, (laughs) Baron Strucker and Hydra, the Red Skull, or the Yellow Claw? Uh...
1: It's, it can't be Baron Strucker and Hydra, because I don't think there was a Hydra in World War II, even in the Marvel crap. Baron mm-hmm. Strucker was around in World War II, but not Hydra. Red Skull. Good point. I'm gonna Pete, what do you think? Red Skull?
2: I would go with Red Skull, but I'm also thinking Yellow Claw for some reason.
1: Um, yeah, because yeah, I'm, I'm... They may have wanted to use a villain just for that book. That was like a... Yeah, that book didn't last that long, but, but it... It, it, it also crossed over with sergeant fury i'm pretty sure um, oh really okay that's actually yellow claw but no yellow claw was a 1950s thing i don't know if it was a 1940s thing and and captain savage was a 19 it was a world war II book hmm. i'm sorry i'm going to stick with red skull so, only cuz he's a world war 2 villain yeah. and and yeah. you had said Strucker. i might have leaned
0: toward that but you also said hydra That's in the same answer yeah
1: weird to me cuz hydra wasn't around in world war 2 mhm original
0: yeah yeah all right so let's, let's try go with our scully boys. the red skull no the answer is baron strucker and hydra hydra wasn't around all that can- I, okay we have a discrepancy we have to file a letter here i think all right that's th- you know what let's try they to make
1: introduce hydra and shield like in the 65 and it wasn't the- it was made up of a bunch of former nazis but i don't think it, it operated during world war ii as hydra hmm
2: ready to get Tom Brevoort on the line. Make I know, right?
0: Oh my god. Yeah. We we had that scenario already. All right, let's do one more and see if we can balance out our answers. 2197. And it says <clears throat> Armbar. Who, it says Armbar. Who hired Carol Danvers to edit Woman Magazine? Was it Michael Rossi? J. Jonah Jameson? Barney Bushkin or Annabella Jones? I think I have my answer. Yes. The
1: answer, the answer is J. Jonah Jameson.
0: I do believe so. Yes. Yeah. As I was reading the answers, I said, wait a minute. I think it's J.J.J. Let's try that. And it's letter B. That is correct. Two for four. And we're going to get out while we still can.